Hello, and welcome to the Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I am Peter Hamby. Welcome. First up, I'll be talking to Matt Bellany about the season three finale of Succession, the breakup between Adam McKay and Will Ferrell, and Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Who's going to see it? After that, we'll be joined by Tina Wynn to discuss Devin Nunes' plans to quit Congress and join Trump's new media startup and about the Republican mastermind behind Glenn Youngkin's victory in Virginia. And finally, Dylan Byers will swing by to talk about the ongoing, never-ending Chris Cuomo drama at CNN. These are the great sort of conversations you can only have with expert insider reporters who really know what's going on. I hope that you enjoy The Powers That Be. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Powers That Be. Joining me now is Matt Bellany, Hollywood's reigning expert on all things Hollywood. That's what I'm calling you this week. I want to begin, Matt, with uh, succession, in part because we have to talk really quickly about, spoiler alert for anyone listening, what Whoa, happened last no, episode. Yes. It, please do not reveal anything unless people have the opportunity to turn it down or pause or whatever you do. Yeah. So like, here's your opportunity. Three two, one, Greg. Uh, yeah. So is Kendall dead or is Kendall, is Kendall not dead? <laughs> well, well, I want to set the table here real quick for why we're discussing this one. Uh, Adam McKay and Will Ferrell are co-producers of the show and have been since it started. And there's a big story happening out here in Los Angeles about their, their breakup uh, involving uh, an HBO series that they were maybe going to work on for HBO about the LA Lakers heyday back in the eighties. But I want you to get into that because you have a great story on Puck about their breakup, which is important for many reasons. But before we get to that, everyone wants to hear about succession as usual, the Venn diagram of Puck readers and succession viewers is a perfect circle. And so the season finale is coming up on Sunday night. And the way we left it in the last episode was we saw Kendall floating on his stomach, surrounded by beer bottles in a Tuscan pool. As, as you do, as you do in, in Tuscan. <laughs> Ignoring his kids. Um, and so, yeah, is he really drowning or just emotionally drowning? You know, I, I cannot see them killing off the main character. Because no. he is the main character in this show. I mean, yes, it's an ensemble, but... Everything, especially this season, has revolved around him, and I just can't see them getting rid of him. Uh, you know, watch, I'll be wrong, but I, I don't. I mean, everybody, the people who believe this are citing a bunch of things. First of all, there was this New Yorker profile last week in which a lot of his co-cast members were talking about him as if almost he wasn't on the show anymore, as if you know they were kind of raising a lot of issues about working with him. He's a very kind of method actor and difficult to deal with when he's in a, a character state. But I just don't see it. Um, you know, maybe so, but it's much, to me, the bigger play and the much more, you know, in tune with the show's themes storyline would be if Kendall goes public with the fact that he killed a dude. Because that, after this last episode where his father basically just like destroyed him and said, you, you will never be me and you're not getting $2 billion from me and that offer is not on the table. I think this is really his only play because him going public would bring down his father in a way that we haven't seen yet. Um, and that would be interesting. Yeah, I, I think that 
the idea of us showing up in the season finale and he he's dead <laughs> is just sort of stupid and lazy. Well, on HBO um, shows, yeah. on HBO shows, they often put the most you know pressing plot twists or development in the second to last episode of the season. So that's another reason why people are saying this is the big moment from the season, and next episode is not going to you know it's going to be everyone reacting. But if you look, if you go back and, and hear the the Logan monologue that he destroyed Kendall with. It was all about how he cleans up his messes. And that's what he did when he killed the guy in, in the UK. So he's going to throw that back in his face. Yeah. And, he, and one thing I think that's been missing from this season a little bit is the on-screen heat between Brian Cox and Jeremy Strong. Like those two one-on-one is pretty electric. But two, to what you just said... Logan specifically talked about that boy you killed and were you on drugs when Kendall was saying that he's a better person. So that that feels much more of the the table setter for, you know, what will happen in the season finale. And again, like that idea that you just proposed that he'll come out and say, I killed a guy and my father helped cover it up. (laughs) It feels much more high stakes and just sort of boundary pushing than Kendall dying. I don't know why we're talking so long about this. It's so obvious Kendall's not dying. (laughs) I know. Well, they also planted a flag by suggesting that it may come out in the media. Remember, they said there's that podcast working on this and he told the publicist to keep an eye on it. So he in his head knows that it likely will come out at some point, which would give him more reason to go public himself. Right. Uh, Well, I want to move on to, to your story and talk about Adam McKay and Will Ferrell. The headline on Puck.News was the truth behind the McKay Farrell split. So these two had been working together for 25 years, going back to SNL and sort of mysteriously stopped working together back in 2019. And this is, they worked together on huge, huge hits like Anchorman, uh, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, the other guys. And then, you know, Adam McKay had other big hits and you tell me if they work together on these, but things like the big short and vice, you know, which <laughs> these things won Academy Awards. Why aren't they pals anymore? Cause it, it, they started a whole production company together and were sort of reputed to be for a very long time, the closest of collaborators. Yeah. I think this is why this story is so interesting to people in Hollywood is because these were considered like the good guys. Like they were not drama Kings. They, you know, people did not think of them as like this volatile creative relationship. They were really successful and they're both really good guys and they just kind of chugged along. And then all of a sudden, one day there was a press release put out that said that they are no longer working together. Um, what the truth is behind the matter is that this has been simmering for a while. They had been drifting apart. McKay had really gone another direction in trying to do more elevated, kind of satirical and ultimately award winning type filmmaking. And Will Ferrell was not doing that kind of stuff. And he was more interested in doing the more, you know, Will Ferrell vehicle type projects. Succession, to be honest, was one of the last things that they did together. And it was mostly a McKay vehicle. Will Ferrell, according to people I talked to, was not really even involved at all. And, you know, this happens. A lot of times creative partnerships in Hollywood go south. Um, the famous example is there are two guys who created Modern Family, Steve Levitan and Christopher Lloyd. They actually had a falling out during the first season of Modern Family, ended up doing it completely separate for 10 seasons. So, you know, it's not surprising they ultimately went their their own ways, but they put out the statement saying it was all amicable. And then we learn in this Vanity Fair profile of Adam McKay 
uh, last week where he said that the old falling out was based on the casting of this show he's doing about the LA Lakers in the 80s, which is based on this book called Showtime, which details the kind of behind the scenes, crazy party, wild lifestyle of the NBA in the 1980s. And Will Ferrell really wanted to play Jerry Buss, the owner of the Lakers, who is this kind of flamboyant 80s playboy figure, made everybody call him Dr. Buss because he had a doctor degree, you know, was hanging out at the Playboy Mansion and with Jack Nicholson. And he had a, a, you know, a party lounge within the forum at, uh, at the Lakers Stadium in Inglewood. And Will Ferrell thought he'd be great for it. Adam McKay did not. The story suggested in Vanity Fair that that was the final straw that broke up the company. What I had found out that that wasn't actually the case, um, the timeline was kind of screwed up. They had actually broken up well before Will Ferrell wanted to be cast in the show and was ultimately passed over for John C. Riley, um, who's playing uh, the character in the show. What happened was actually the actor Michael Shannon was first cast as Dr. Buss. Then that didn't work out. He was let go and John C. Riley was called to do it. The problem was Adam McKay did not tell his friend and partner, Will Ferrell, that he was going to cast John C. Riley. And John C. Riley happens to be Will Ferrell's best friend. So Will Ferrell found out that he was, you know, not going to be the backup casting after Michael Shannon. What didn't work out, not from Adam McKay, but from John C. Riley, and that's what pissed him off. They no longer speak, and uh, that's where you know the the Adam McKay interview came from. So it's an unfortunate situation, and you know it really says a lot about how tough it is to you know keep these creative partnerships in Hollywood going. I'm glad you reported that because it, it felt a little too credulous to say that or to report that. McKay and Farrell just broke up because of a single casting decision. Like these things don't happen without just you're either growing apart over time. And it's clear McKay is like very interested in making these prestige award winning shows and movies and maybe not necessarily the Will Ferrell vehicle. But well, that was the whole thing. That's why the comments felt a little patronizing and sort of a little bit like, oh, what an asshole. Because, you know, the Adam McKay career, I mean, his latest movie, which is getting kind of um, polarizing reviews um i really liked it but a lot of people say it's this is the this is the netflix movie about what could happen in a climate catastrophe what's it called? well it's an allegory for climate change because it's actually about an asteroid that is coming to destroy earth and what the reaction is on earth when people find out Ah, so but it's got i mean it's got meryl streep it's got leo dicaprio it's got jennifer lawrence it's got jonah hill like it's an all-star cast here and Will Ferrell is doing an Apple TV show with Paul Rudd. He's doing Eurovision. He's not doing that level of work. And that's why the, the comments of, that McKay made about his breakup, it sort of felt a little patronizing. Like, oh, you know, he was upset with me. He didn't get cast in one of my projects. And, you know, he uh, took it really harshly. And it was a bummer. It was all my fault. Like, it just kind of felt patronizing. Well, you know, whatever their relationship, I personally would have loved to see Will Ferrell play Kurt Rambis uh, on the 80s Lakers. I feel like that's a perfect casting decision, but obviously a minor character compared to Cherry Buss. Yeah. You know, the one that fell out that was interesting was Bo Burnham was going to play Larry Bird. (laughs) Oh, I kind of like that. Which is good because Bo Burnham's like six foot five and kind of has that like light complexion. But for whatever reason, that didn't happen. Adrian Brody is playing Pat Riley, which I think is pretty good. The slick back hair. That's very good. 
But the other thing about this HBO show that I kind of stumbled upon when I was writing about it is that this Lakers show is really hated by people in the NBA, especially those 80s Lakers. I talked to you know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and his manager. Kareem is not a fan of this show and doesn't think that they should have done it. They aren't a fan of the book Showtime that uh, chronicled this time in their lives. And I think it's some of it is probably embarrassing to them, the lifestyle choices, especially Magic Johnson, because... The book starts in 1979 when Magic was drafted by the Lakers and kind of the end of the Showtime era was when Magic announced in 1991 that he was HIV positive. So it's not really any, you know, the lifestyle stuff leading up to that does not paint a very responsible picture of these people in the NBA. But, you know, my, my reaction to that is like, this was 30 years ago. Like, you know, everybody knows the NBA in the 80s was just out of control. And I think yeah, totally. Most people you talk to acknowledge that. Like, it's not like this is some shock. Yeah. Wait, so who would you say is the most critical? Kareem? Kareem is the one that talked to me about it and said that gotcha. you know, he didn't think that these people should be telling the story. And he didn't, you know, and his manager was even more critical. She said that someone who's playing Kareem reached out. To her, the actor, you know, thinking that they would be friendly and they were not very nice to that actor because, the, you know, they don't like this project at all. The NBA has actually traded lawyer letters with, with HBO about this because they don't want any of the trademarks of the teams to be used in the show. And, uh, you know, there's some interesting legal parameters on that. You can use logos in a certain context and not, you know, not pervasively. But the, the NBA basically said, we're monitoring this project and don't, you know, don't make us come after you. Like, I, I mean, I know, you know, Kareem, he can be a little prickly. Uh, he's he's a very smart guy and he's such a wonderful writer. But I can see how he wouldn't want stories about we all know, like what was going on in the 80s and, and in the NBA, like afterwards. Oh my after God, I mean, it's public. But and it's also like, in some of these no things, one wants to actually say it, you know? <laughs> well, and <laughs> like, you don't want to see yourself portrayed by actors and you have no control over it. And you're also not getting paid. I mean, that's the other thing. The NBA and all these players are not getting paid anything for this. And it's like, well, hey, this is our story. So much so that the, that Jeannie Buss, the current owner of the Lakers and Jerry Buss's daughter, she's doing her own show at Netflix about what it's like to be the female... GM of the Lakers and she's doing with Mindy Kaling and that'll be her own way to tell her story. But Jeannie Buss hates this project because not only is it about the wild lifestyle in the eighties, it's about her father. You know, she doesn't want to see her father played by John C. Riley as this kind of like playboy, you know, uh, uh, womanizing owner, even though by almost all accounts, that is exactly what he was. The last thing I want to ask you real quick is, West Side Story, this is uh, Spielberg's remake of the, the famous musical, obviously. It comes out this weekend. It's already making, you know, best films of 2021 lists. You know, we talk a lot in this pod about who goes to see what kind of movies now. Specifically, there's a mass market for Marvel movies. We know that. Re- like, big time remakes, maybe. But is there is there a market for like this kind of like musical remake? There used to be, you know, 20 years ago. But who's going to go see this movie? That's a real big question. I don't know. Other than film Twitter, maybe. I, I just don't know who the who is demanding the West Side Story remake. I mean, this movie already won Best Picture 60 years ago. So, you know, it's not like the first one was a disaster. And I just don't think, you know, it's a $130 million movie. It's, you know, 
coming out at a time when older audiences are, have been the most reluctant to go back to movie theaters. And I just think for Disney, which inherited this movie and its acquisition of Fox, I just don't know if there's an audience for this movie. It's also got a weird release date. People don't typically go to the movies in mid-December. The big movies of the year are usually reserved for the last two weeks around the holidays because people are with their relatives, they're home, they're not working. But before that, they're at holiday parties, they're busy shopping, they're doing all the things to finish out their year of work. And that's why you don't typically see big movies. I mean, this feels like the kind of movie that I would, again, something we've talked about before, that I would probably watch on streaming, you know, but like I wouldn't go anymore out of my way to a theater to see it. Again, in fairness to film Twitter, I'm not, I don't generally love musicals, but we watched the Les Mis remake, which came on Netflix recently, and I had never seen it, and I grew up listening to Les Mis and like knew every word by heart, and I was like, that movie came out like 10 years ago, but I was like, this is pretty good, but I was like, I didn't feel like I regretted not seeing it on the big screen. No, I don't think, I mean, you and I are probably not the target audience for this yeah, movie, yeah, although yeah. I do tend to see all the Oscar movies, and it could be a big Oscar movie this year just because Spielberg is beloved. The critics seem to really like it. And, the you know, the performances, especially the young girl, Rachel Zegler, that they got to uh, play Maria, is, is, uh, she's getting a lot of attention. But, you know, I just, in terms of box office, like, uh, I just don't know about this one. Um, you know, Disney would really like a lot more product for the streaming service, Disney+, Plus, especially movies like this that appeal to a large, not just children audience. Um, you know, Hamilton did really well for Disney Plus when they put it there. But two things. First, Spielberg would never allow that. Spielberg wants theatrical release and he's, you know, earned that right and in his deal he gets that. And secondly, the Fox movies, this is a movie from Fox that they acquired. Fox movies cannot go directly to Disney Plus because the output deal, which is where they appear first after theatrical, is with HBO. So you saw this happen with Free Guy earlier this year, the Ryan Reynolds movie. That couldn't go to streaming because it was a Fox movie, so they released it in theaters. The X-Men movie they had, they also did that. And that's going to end soon when you know, they, they start releasing their own version of these 20th century movies. But for now, Disney had no opportunity to put it on streaming. They had to go to theaters. All right, Matt. I will assume that you are a, a jet and not a shark. I, I don't know enough to know which is which, to be honest. <laughs> I don't either. We're definitely not the target <laughs> audience for this. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, West Side Story. Are there any good guys? I thought there was like Romeo and Juliet where they're both bad. Yeah, it's like they're the. I think it's like there's a love story and one the the girl is from one of the gangs. Yeah, she's from the, the guys from one of the gangs. Oh my god! Now we're we're just going to embarrass ourselves with our lack know, of knowledge about West Side Story. Let's just stop. Okay. All right. <laughs> um. <laughs> fine. All right. Hang up now. Uh, I will talk to you next week. Thanks, Matt. All right. Thanks. Coming up, I talked to Tina Wynn about how Glenn Youngkin won in Virginia, Devin Nunes, and the K-pop invasion of Marfa, Texas. Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only insiders know. The real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck's content is great. Our scoops and analysis will help you understand the most important stuff happening all around us today. And when you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting our great team, empowering us to do the work that really matters to grow our business and pave a path for a new media model. So check us out at puck.news.
Welcome back, pod listeners. Uh, it is a pleasure right now to be joined from the Marfa, Texas Bureau of Puck News. <laughs> <laughs> Tina Wynn. <laughs> Tina is in Marfa, which is one of my favorite places uh, in the world. It's this little arts town in West Texas. Uh, why are you there right now? Uh, I'm working on a project and I figured I needed some creativity. I needed a frick ton of stars and desert and right now nobody because it's off season here, I think. So everything's a little bit cheaper and everyone's a little less influencer-y. Uh, I went there during Marfa Myths, which is like this festival and it was very crowded with the hippest people you could imagine. And then uh, we went back in January a couple years ago and it was totally off season. And I kind of loved it too. Like there was like snow on the ground and we went to the Lost Horse Saloon, which is the like sort of bar in the edge of town and no one was in there and there was a band playing and they were terrible, but they were just like passing through. <laughs> it was cool. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, can I tell you a horrible story about the Prada Marfa sculpture? Uh, yes, go on. Okay, so for people who aren't particularly on Instagram or following Instagram influencers, there's a sculpture about half an hour to an hour outside of town called the Prada Marfa. You may be familiar through it through like Gossip Girl or whatever. And it's just a giant. It's in every college girl's dorm room. Exactly. Exactly. It's just a sculpture in the middle of the desert. That's a Prada store and you can't go in it. And I was sitting in a bar with a local recently and she told me that she drives up and down that road all the time. And she keeps seeing influencers there, but they're always squatting on the side of the road because they don't realize it's in the middle of nowhere and they forget to go to the bathroom beforehand. <laughs> That's very funny. The, I've, my experience with that is I've driven past it because like, usually when I've gone in, I go in on, from El Paso, so I'm going back toward El Paso. There's usually some nice people who offer to take pictures of you, but like I've been there twice when there's like a huge tour bus full of like Germans just pulled over. <laughs> it's, it's very weird. If you're a real like Marfa snob, the cooler mural, which you might have seen is the um, it's like a three or four piece installation honoring James Dean because he filmed this movie in Marfa way back in the day. That's Texas people love called Giant. And um, there's like this huge sculpture of James Dean. I think he's got like a rifle on his shoulder or something. Um, it makes for some cool, some cool picks. Uh, but whatever, I will say, I don't care. I like Prada Marfa. I like everything about Marfa. I think it's cool and weird. And yeah, I suggest I you it. come. So I'm glad I'm jealous you're there. I would suggest come soon before all the BTS fans come because apparently one member of BTS was here yesterday to go to the Chianti Foundation, the Chianti Foundation where Donald Judd has all his sculptures. And then he put it on his Instagram and oh. Yeah, now all the K-pop fangirls are going to come out here and it's going to be awful and they're going to do worse <laughs> things to Marfa than the rich white people ever did. <laughs> there, There is a little bit of Marfa, of the Marfa population that does not like the outsiders, so we'll see how they react. Anyway, I want to uh, ask you about your interview piece up on Puck this week in which uh, you did a really smart post-mortem interview with the Republican strategist, Jeff Rowe, R-O-E, uh, who is based in Texas, um, or usually, but Jeff was the chief strategist on Glenn Youngkin's gubernatorial campaign in Virginia, which came from behind and won and surprised everybody. And 
the reason he's been doing a little bit of a victory lap, even though he wouldn't call it that after winning that campaign is, and this is a guy who worked for Ted Cruz when he ran for president um, and has worked for a variety of campaigns. But that victory by Youngkin in Virginia was heralded possibly as a post-Trump Republican playbook. In other words, a way that now that Trump is out of office, how do Republicans win when he's not on the ballot? Do they pretend to be Donald Trump? Do they pretend to be more like Mitt Romney? Like, how do you do it, especially in a swing state? So does he agree with that notion that the Yunkin campaign offered a blueprint for Republicans heading into the midterms next year? Or is that fantasy? I would say it's a little bit of the opposite of what you said. It's not like the way he described it was it's not this is not a blueprint. You would not be able to replicate Glenn Youngkin's campaign everywhere. But it did reveal a lot of fatal weaknesses in Democrat strategy going into 22 that the Democrats are either unwilling to acknowledge or incapable of resolving before then. God, one of the best quotes from it was, it's like we came in with a hammer and the Democrats are responding with like a sponge. <laughs> so in other words, Youngkin was, I mean, I feel like this is the way Jeff talks about Glenn Youngkin is, he's a once in a lifetime candidate, which is like, okay, man, he's like, he was good. Mm-hmm. He had a shitload of money. To me, the magic trick of of their campaign wasn't necessarily finding a way to beat Terry McAuliffe. It was getting the Republican nomination in the first place. Did you did you ask him about how they did that? Because there were there was a Trumpier person in that primary, which became a convention, which then became a weird convention of only old timer Republicans. Like it was a very interesting process. How did they do that? Honestly, we didn't really get into that so much. We tried to make this more of a forward looking piece because he's kind of tired of repeating like how he won with Glenn Youngkin. Because, And honestly, I don't blame him. That was a really weird race where he had the good fortune of backing a specific candidate, getting him past the Trump guy, and then winning in a state where he could easily get around being the election fraud thing, the which is a super Trumpian uh, talking point by pointing to Terry McAuliffe and saying this guy was claiming that the 2000 election was stolen. So this guy's been saying more elections were stolen than Trump ever did. And mm-hmm. that was a pretty that was an easy way for them to step around that issue. And he acknowledged straight up the next dem- a lot of Republicans won't be that lucky. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, ter- like Terry McAuliffe was whether he I think he was DNC chairman at the time Al Gore was conceding but you know a lot of democrats did say back then and still say that election was stolen i would say democrats would say it was stolen in a different way it was stolen by like the official levers of the supreme court in full public view not by some like mysterious cabal behind the scenes that's deeply unprovable but you know they ran that clip of terry mcauliffe saying the 2000 election was stolen over and over and over again so it did give them a way to sort of swat it away I wanted to talk about education because, you know, we've talked, you and I have talked about this on the pod. Julie and I have talked about it on the pod. And when I interviewed Jeff Rowe before the Virginia election, he was already pointing to education. But is this kind of like really great issue because I think he called it like a triple threat or something like that. Some some sort of sports term where basically it animated the Republican base. So Youngkin could kind of wink at the. CRT stuff on the right. It got independents 
to pay attention because education was sort of something that, you know, every parent cares about in Virginia, especially a state with a lot of suburbs, a state where they take public education incredibly seriously and always have. I grew up there. And a state that has a lot of statues. Yeah, they have a lot of statues of controversial men. They do. They've taken and they've taken a bunch down in Richmond, but there's still a plenty. Um, and then the other reason was that it, it got Democrats all twisted up because and, and this is where I think the education thing was also very strong was Glenn Youngkin talking constantly about parental rights and education was received on the left as this is a racist dog whistle critical race theory isn't taught in schools. And so to, to Jeff Rowe and his team, that looked like Democrats and progressives on Twitter and people in the media were like missing the heart of the issue, which was that education was just like a jumble. Like, and it, it, it was a, it was a Rorschach test and it could mean critical race theory to, you know, a Fox news viewer down in Southwest Virginia. It could also mean to some of my friends in the Virginia suburbs that like, they didn't really like, how the democratic led state of Virginia handled uh, education and, you know, schools and homeschooling during the pandemic. Um, And then it could also mean softer things that aren't critical race theory, but do touch on race and achievement and, and inequality and equity, you know, standards of learning around math, et cetera. Anyway, that's a long way of saying Rose is really proud of education as an issue that can, do three things, get independents and low information voters to pay attention and vote, put Democrats off balance and animate the Republican base. So does he think that can be replicated next year in Kansas and Texas and wherever else there's a battleground? Or is it really unique to Virginia? Well, that I think he can pretty much take ev- elf- like anywhere and everywhere if he or any other Republican candidate interested in getting a suburb back would. Like, it's an issue that the Democrats have been super bad on, and it's an issue that he has realized through tons of polling that middle class American suburban voters, ex-urban voters are super concerned with. And take say what you will about CRT, school closures have been on the top of parents' minds for an entire year, the inadequacy to which public schools were able to communicate with parents was just pretty awful. And if you're a parent who's trying to figure out what to do with your child, whether you're going to be stuck with your child all the time, whether they're going to go back to school, will they wear a mask? Will they have to wear a mask? What's the deal with that? Like mandates. I have a lot of friends who are parents of really young kids and the degree to which they had absolutely no idea what was going to be required of them. Like it was... It's a tangible fear. It really is. And if you can connect the Democrats to the instability or the inconsistency of school closures and mandates, which you can just easily do because you go, Democrats are pro-mask, pro-vaccine. They want to shut everything down. They want to shut your small business down. They want to put everyone put masks on. And now they have all this weird stuff going on about like, was your, your child's going to school or not? It's so easy to link the party with that primal fear and concern that you have over your child. Like, that's universal. That's not something that doesn't take place just in Virginia. That's everywhere. Yeah, I guess, though, the difference is in a governor is the difference is between like a governor's race and then like a Senate and a House campaign. Like the governor does have some influence and jurisdiction on schools in their state, whereas it's harder maybe to make the education argument in a Senate race 
or, you know, a congressional campaign, you know, that Democrats are going to ruin schools where, you know, it just doesn't it feels like it's a little bit of a tougher argument in (laughs) a federal race than a state one. Uh, depends on the candidate that they run in a federal race. If they go and going blah, 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 squad, Biden ma- mandates, blah, 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 education. If you yell that enough times with a less coherent candidate in a race that's a little, if any race with like a down ticket vote Republican thing, I'm sure that would work well. Again, I think that's why certain races have to be a little localized, but education is a pretty potent tool that you can reach for. One thing I do want to ask you about, and then I want to ask you about Trump's media company and his new social media app, neither of which exist yet. But before moving on to that, you asked Jeff who who has a good brand heading into 2024. In other words, assuming Donald Trump doesn't run, which Republican candidates are in the top tier in the next Republican presidential primary? Who did he tell you? Uh, he mentioned Ted Cruz. Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott, which I found fascinating, but I didn't particularly go into it. But my gut instinct with Tim Scott is if Herschel Walker and other African-American candidates can really like break into the public sphere as Republicans, as MAGA friendly, Trump friendly Republicans, then what is stopping Tim Scott from doing so? And I mean, that happened in Virginia. A black woman won lieutenant governor and she's the type, I forget her name off the top of my head, but she had the type of resume that all of a sudden all these MAGA commentators just leapt into the air going, Libs definitely don't want to see a woman like this run for governor. We're not racist. And I mean, yeah. look, she's a, I think she's an ex-Marine immigrant yeah. from Jamaica, all the things that stereotypically would be Democrat, but she ran as a Republican. She won. And I know that the MAGA movement always makes this big, like, hurrah over the fact that they're not racist. But what I think Jeff Rowe found in Virginia is that there is a playbook to peel off minority subgroups. Like, he was really successful in winning Asian voters, which we talked about for quite a bit. Um, Hispanic voters, I think he has an angle into... And the elusive black Republican vote is a bit more achievable now than it was in the past. Well, achievable in the sense that like Democrats win 90 percent usually of that demo. And now Republic or now Democrats might win like 86 percent. Like it's just this margins game where I mean, is that was that what he said that they were able to peel into Asian, Hispanic and maybe the black vote in a way that allowed them to sort of skirt by with a two point win. Um, we didn't talk about black voters, but we did talk about Latinos and Asians and the education issue. Uh, he talked about pretty intensely when it came to Asian Americans. And I mean, he had a pretty good observation, which was they break into the middle class first, but they're also hit the hardest when it comes to price increases and access to education that doesn't particularly fit into the uh, woke curriculum. One of the um, uh, examples he brought up was a gifted magnet school in Loudoun County eliminating their advanced maths program in order to achieve some sort of like racial parity. And the Asian American parents just went ballistic. And um, I think as a result of that, they started running a lot of Youngkin ads in Korean, Taiwanese, Chinese, Vietnamese, and it seemed to work out really well. I think he won a majority of that vote. 
I, I had friends who are parents in central Virginia who are white. Um, and they had just heard about that on Facebook or, you know, in the ether. And again, that's an example of something that wasn't critical race theory being taught in Virginia curriculum. It was, um, a school board made a decision in the name of equity that threatened other parents who had more high achieving children or maybe wanted to have more high achieving children. And they bundled that into Democrats are trying to tell us what to do and how to educate our kids in the name of some like social justice agenda. And we don't like that. And I just think that what you just said is a great example of how it's a more textured debate and political issue than just here's a Fox News lunatic thing that 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 is you know racist and making karens vote against democrats i mean not like asian can i nerd out about asian american political uh go ahead yeah you're more more qualified than i to talk about that yes hello this is tina nguyen at tuck news on the podcast about to drop some knowledge um no this is actually a really big passion issue of mine but Vietnamese American voters have always been super Republican. There's a big thing I'm working on right now involving disinformation campaigns. But overall, Asian voters who are not Vietnamese tend to be more Republican. But the issue of education and affirmative action, Republicans have been trying to use that as a really big wedge issue to peel off more Asian American voters from the Democrats over time. As a voting bloc, they can be reliably Republican, but they're not particularly partisan. Like, they'll just kind of vote for whomever. They don't really show up to events. The CRT issue, affirmative action, there is a possibility that it will politicize Asian American voters, though I'm not quite sure whether that's going to be limited to immigrants, boomer types, or whether the younger generation, which tends to be a bit more progressive, will kind of go, we see what this is. Uh-uh, we're not into it. Anyways, that's my rant. No, Jeff said something interesting in that piece, which is that Vietnamese Americans tend to vote Republican, or at least or like first generation, maybe second generation, kind of like Cuban Americans, because, you know, they left their, you know, dying countries or dying democracies and came to a place that welcomed them and gave them an opportunity. Yeah. It's like you said, they're not reflexively Republican necessarily, but they're definitely patriotic. Patriotic and super anti-communist. Like, yes. Yeah. Whenever I go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever, my relatives will always be like, the communists took our stuff. We don't like communism. We don't like socialism. The people who are trying to take everything that we owned and earned and give it to everyone else, they ruined our lives. It's really potent. Yeah, so I want to I want to ask you something else. Going back to Donald Trump, <laughs> uh, so this week, uh, California Congressman Devin Nunes, one of Trump's biggest supporters in Congress, he defended him aggressively during the Russia investigation um, as chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, he decided he is quitting his seat, which was going to get redistricted here in California, but nevertheless, he could have run somewhere else and and won re-election, he decided to quit Congress and be the CEO of Trump Media and Technology Group, which is Trump's sort of TBD media company, social media app, 
uh, which is at this point part of a SPAC. If you're curious how this all came together, go back a few weeks and listen to my conversation uh, with Bill Cohan, who who has some expertise in this and got the investor deck and all that stuff just to tease out how much currently it's a shell game right now. We'll see what they actually develop. But Devin Nunes is going to be the apprentice. He's going to be Trump's new CEO, the guy who's going to help him build this stuff out. To me, like this just represents the fact that as much as this shocked people in D.C., you know, there's more money, power, fame, and it might even be easier to just not be an elected official. Like all the power is in right wing media. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, I'm just curious, like, I don't I don't know how well you know Devin Nunes, but does he have expertise in this world where he can go out and build truth social and Trump's, you know, cloud services program and, and Trump's streaming network that's going to compete with Netflix? Honestly, no one who breaks into a right wing social media tech space has any expertise in it. <laughs> I have been reporting on this specific subset of the right wing for ages now. Mike Lindell has his own social media company that keeps crashing all the time. Dan Bongino has one called Rumble. Uh, Mike's is called Truth Social, and that's a mess and a half. Uh, I wasn't surprised that Trump was going to get into this. I actually was trying to figure out, like, way before I joined Puck, what the technology would look like there. I honestly think what it is, is that they're trying to become some sort of weird MAGA version of meta. What's meta? As in like the Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, the metaverse. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, the metaverse. Yeah, where like they're trying to like assemble all of these smaller companies underneath the Trump umbrella. And I mean, they just announced that they were doing a distribution partnership with Rumble content. And that's right wing. Mm -hmm. That's like right wing YouTube. And they have all the crazier content that YouTube would automatically like demonetize or outright block. And I mean, if you build a big enough audience, the right people will come, especially since that audience is like that audience actively hates Fox News. Did you know that? Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of them do. But I think you're right. In other words, on the on the social media side of it, too, people on the left and people that work in tech and media and a lot of people on Twitter, like reflexively mock the sort of getter rumble, like parlor universe or whatever. And, and, and they've done the same with truth social and, and the, whatever Trump's media company is going to look like, but you know, under the right stewardship and, and marketing, <laughs> there is a world where there could be one standout, like conservative social media platform. Like no one's just built the, the tech for it, like there just hasn't been a reason to be in that public square versus Twitter or whatever else, because a lot of the fun on the right is trolling and triggering the libs and owning the libs. And the libs are on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and wherever else. And like, that's why a lot of those voices and a lot of that activity has gone in that direction. If you go to truth social, whatever it turns out to be, and it's just only conservatives, you know, that, that takes some of the fun out of it, (laughs) I think for them, but we'll see. I mean, like, again, they, they're currently valued. The, the SPAC is called like DWAC or something. It's, it's listed out there and it's currently valued at over a billion dollars. They're raising money. They're hiring a team, you know, and, and anything with that kind of capital, Anything with that kind of 
brand recognition, which Trump is bringing, like you can't just write them off. Um, and so I think that's the calculus for for Nunez, who and I, I just looked it up. I, I should have known this because I'm in California. His district is up in northern California. Um, but he's he's comes from a, like a farming family. Like he's a that's his expertise is like running a farm, which is a business. So like maybe he can he can he can do this, too. Um, but I don't know. It Maybe he won't be going on Fox News as much. But, you know, if you're somewhat of an entrepreneur, this might be more appealing than, you know, just being running the House Ways and Means Committee, which, you know, is a really powerful job to most normal politicians. But again, in 2021, being close to Trump and being in conservative media is a hard thing to turn down. Hell no. Absolutely. Like, there's a billion dollars. It's a space where you will still retain a lot of political relevance because you suddenly position yourself as I'm here as a crusader, as a crusader against big tech, which I think has a bit more appeal to someone trying to step into the future than I'm going to fight Nancy Pelosi again. And here's Congress doing stupid <laughs> Congress stuff like this is this is the next battlefield for them. Yeah, I I was writing um, a script this week about this for my Snapchat show, Good Luck America, and like the, my the, I just pulled it up. Like the final line in my script is, "Just ask yourself who's more famous and powerful on the right. Any of these Republican ranking members of Congress that you've probably never never heard of." And then I like listed through. These are ranking members on important committees like budget, appropriations, etc. Kevin Brady, Kay Granger, Tom Cole, Jason Smith, James Comer. Devin Nunes would have been the head of Ways and Means, maybe. No one knows who those people are. Not that they're not powerful, but they don't have any attentional currency out there. Or, like, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity. Like, it's those people. Like, those are the people that are sexy, powerful, wealthy. And I think Nunes would rather be attaching himself to that world rather than, you know, Kevin McCarthy. That is my take. That's a good take. <laughs> Congratulations. Right. Thanks. I will let you get back to Marfa. Enjoy go enjoy Marfa. I love that place. Go to do your thing and go to the Lost Horse and I don't know. Get some tacos. Yeah, give me some more recommendations offline. I'm pretty sure I don't know. Maybe the listeners want to learn about Marfa more. We've talked about it too much. We have, we have. Uh okay. just Google Marfa. M A R F A. Okay, cool. Thanks, Tina. See you next time. I Coming up, Dylan Byers is here to talk about Christopher Cuomo. Hey, it's Peter Hamby. Along with my colleagues, I want to invite you to check out Puck.News for the inside story, what's really going on in our culture. It's only $100 a year, which is a steal. If you need a present for your smartest coworker, consider buying them a subscription. Check out Puck at Puck.News. We're joined now by Dylan Byers. Uh, both of us used to work at CNN, so it's only fitting that we talk about the Chris Cuomo <laughs> imbroglio. Full disclosure. <laughs> Full disclosure. <laughs> um, although n- neither of us pull punches when we talk about CNN. So that's, no, sort of that's the true. other comment. So Dylan, um, uh, Matt Bellany and I talked in last week's episode about what might happen to Chris Cuomo um, after he was suspended indefinitely for advising his brother, Andrew more than had been previously known during the sexual harassment scandal. And then in the intervening days, I was actually kind of surprised by this. He got fired. What do we know as of this taping right now? I mean, is is this going to be an acrimonious 
break up. What is what is Chris Cuomo saying about all this? And then what is CNN and Jeff Zucker saying about it? Yeah, it's not an acrimonious breakup um, for a number uh, or sorry, it is an acrimonious breakup. A couple of reasons why. One, uh, Chris Cuomo feels like based off of the sources I've spoken with or close to him, feels like he's a little bit of a victim of cancel culture here and feels like he's being, uh, in the words of his lawyer, like he's being fired for an anonymous claim from his previous employer. And, and I can't speak for Chris Cuomo, obviously, but that is the impression he has left folks close to him with. But Dylan, just uh, to back up, just to back up a second, yeah. Cuomo was fired from CNN in part because he purportedly was doing more to help his brother than he had previously told CNN, but also because a, and you have more reporting on this. He, there was apparently another claim of sexual harassment against him that came up in recent weeks. Okay. Right. So why, so this is why it's, it's, this is why it's a contentious breakup because he believes that the reason he was fired has to do with this and it's not, it, he, he, he doesn't like it. And again, I think he feels like he's a victim here. Meanwhile, I don't think that's why CNN actually fired him. I think that when the Cuomo stuff came to light about him being actively involved in trying to uh, figure out what reporting was being done on his brother and to try and ward it off, that is something that Jeff Zucker and the folks at CNN feel like they were not aware of, feel like they that Cuomo had not given them total insight into what had happened when he said that he had just sort of sat in on calls with his brother and, 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 and offered his brother some advice. And Jeff Zucker, from my understanding, was ready to fire Chris Cuomo at the beginning of the week where all of that came to light on a Monday. He was walked off the ledge and decided to suspend Cuomo pending review. And the results of that review about what Cuomo did to help his brother came to Zucker's desk around the same time that this new accusation came to light. And at that point, I think by Friday, by the end of the week, Zucker did indeed go ahead and decide to fire him. So to get back to your initial question, what's the relationship now between CNN and Cuomo? I think Jeff Zucker feels like he was misled by Cuomo and stuck his neck out for Cuomo and Cuomo didn't tell him everything. And I think Cuomo feels like he uh, is, is a, again, a victim here and that CNN should have stood firm and, and, and had his back more than it did. And now, of course, None of that matters because the relationship is over and they've lawyered up and it'll and it'll go from there. But I think there's a lot of bad feelings. OK, so in terms of a contract termination at a TV network, in ter- especially with a name this big and, and the dollars involved, is there a universe where a sexual harassment claim was a much easier way for CNN to fire Chris Cuomo than murky suggestions that he broke his promises to the network about his, you know, journalistic integrity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, you like that, that case is tough given obviously Chris Cuomo's 
open political bias on the air toward his brother, especially during the beginning of COVID versus, oh, there's been a claim of sexual harassment. We can rightfully terminate your contract. I actually, so I actually think here that there's a third piece, which is, I don't think it's just what came to light um, about the help with the brother. I think that CNN took that and investigated the matter and their lawyer or the lawyer that they had told them that they had a green light to fire Cuomo for cause. And that is separate from the former sexual harassment charge, which CNN didn't even go down the road of investigating that because on top of the fact that you've got this highly now highly controversial situation with a guy who maybe didn't tell you everything that he should have told you from the get go, you don't even need to go down the road of investigating this former sexual harassment claim because your lawyers have already told you that based off of what Cuomo did vis-a-vis his brother, that you had the green light to fire him for cops. And so Cuomo's lawyers will go out there and say, how can you fire me for a sexual harassment claim from an anonymous accuser from my former employer? And what CNN will say is we fired you for the stuff you did with your brother that we found out about after spending a few days reviewing. Okay. But what, this is just where I'm confused. Like what specifically then is the cause like what what rule did he break what 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 piece of his contract did he violate yes that's that is that's the sixty four thousand dollar question and 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 i'm sure that will come out in whatever legal fight the uh these two parties get to uh or actually it's more likely that it won't because they will settle because these things almost always get settled but somewhere in that legal battle lies the answer to that question and i don't know the answer and so like why did why did Jeff Zucker support Chris Cuomo? I mean, obviously, as as just mentioned, as I just mentioned, there's reason to believe that Jeff Zucker was the person who wanted Andrew Cuomo to come on Chris Cuomo's show half a dozen times in early COVID, breaking the network's own rules about that. But why did he stand with Cuomo back in August? Up, up until this point. Up well, until because, this point. Yeah. So a couple things. One, I think that he, as the network had made an invest, and I, I made this point back in the day when when Cuomo's sins seemed to be less grave. The network invested in Cuomo and it paid him for what CNN talent gets, a significant amount of money. And they were trying to build the brand in part around him. And you had this very, very unique circumstance where his brother was the governor. And of course, there was going to be, like, like Zucker said often, it was a unique circumstance and I think he biffed it in terms of being like, okay, Cuomo's not going to cover his brother, but during COVID, we're going to have this whole weird dynamic between them. And so we're going to allow it in this case, but then the sexual harassment stuff happens around the governor's office. And now all of a sudden we're, we're not covering it. Yet. It was very poorly played, but from where Zucker's sitting, you've got a primetime host, you've invested in him. You like him. You like having access to the governor's office. And it's making for good television by the standards of cable news, which we know are pretty low. And am I really going to get rid of this guy? Because when his brother was going through the ringer, this guy got on the phone with him and said, hey, man, you know, I'm here. Let me give you some advice. And the answer to that is no. And it's not that won't satisfy the media watchdogs or the critics of CNN because that seems like uh, uh, it runs afoul of the laws of journalism. But the truth is it, it, it was a murky situation. 
And no matter how you feel about it, you could at least make the argument that what he was doing was still within the bounds of acceptable behavior. Once he started trying to thwart stories about his brother, dig up dirt uh, about journalists or accusers, what have you, once that he reached that level of involvement, it becomes a lot harder for Jeff Zucker to go out there and stick his neck out for Chris Cuomo. And again, like I said, when he learned that, he was ready to fire Cuomo. And, and, and the decision to suspend Cuomo and review the matter was in a way Jeff Zucker actually being walked off the ledge from doing something that he was ready to do. So like you, I have plenty of criticisms of CNN, plenty of criticisms of Jeff Zucker, but on this issue, knowing him as a guy who values loyalty and and values a direct relationship with the people who work for him, I think he took it personally that he felt like Cuomo had not only lied to him or misled him, but had in doing so had put the the integrity of the cnn brand <laughs> or what's left of it of it uh, at, at stake and i think i think he took personal offense do you have any sense of uh yet who might replace him in that time slot yeah uh yes and no 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 is the honest answer because the only person who knows the answer to that question is jeff zucker and Je- and he might have made a decision and he's going to wait several months to to announce it or he's going to he has an idea of what he wants to do and he's going to test out some things see what works and then announce it but it's not something that 10 people at CNN know and and I could call someone and ask so no I don't know I have thoughts though which is that they are probably going to find someone internal and that would mean basically nothing too dramatic or sexy in terms of a storyline Maybe you move Don Lemon up an hour, open up an hour for someone like Laura Coates, who they've been trying to figure out a way to promote. Uh, Brianna Keeler is at Mornings now, but she's sort of seen as someone that the network is investing in, so she could move there. My pipe dream, uh, just because I'm old-fashioned, is you know you lure Brian Williams uh, out from his early retirement and get him to come back and do something there. Uh, but but all of these options will, of course, strike you as extremely familiar and and, and kind of unexciting and, and outside of maybe a, a creative Brian Williams thing, not not terribly inspired. And that is sort of the state of cable news right now. And so as I'm asking people in New York in, who run in these circles, like what is going to happen at the 9 p.m. hour at CNN? And I, and I asked them this about MSNBC, too, because Rachel Maddow will be leaving her slot. People keep throwing around this idea that they should get AOC to do it. Come on. And I don't think any, I don't think anyone thinks that's going to happen. But the fact that like I've talked to people from so many disparate parts of the television news universe and they keep the AOC's name keeps throwing, coming up suggests that like the things that a network like CNN or MSNBC could do to actually do something really dramatic and exciting in prime time are probably not options for them. They're stuck with a familiar cast of characters, a familiar bench. And, uh, you know, I actually think one of the strongest people who could do it would be Jake Tapper. And he he will deny this at, at quite a high decibel. But <laughs> he, he, he has long wanted primetime. He is a very ambitious person. He will say now that he doesn't want it. But I actually think he would be very strong in that regard. And I think it would at least signal to people that CNN might be returning back toward a more news journalism focused uh, uh, tone and tenor and away from the sort of you know, highly opinionated primetime programming that they have now uh, after Anderson. Yes. Um, and, and both of us tweeted about your your piece of reporting on the AOC 
float and like very savvy people on Twitter were like, ha ha, this is ridiculous. This is stupid. And I think you just articulated what those suggestions really mean, which is just that, you know, that they, they need a hail Mary to sort of reclaim not just the ratings from 10 years ago, but just clinging to sort of Maddow level ratings, which are 2 million an hour or whatever. I mean, no other show on cable comes close to that. Any replacements in these hours are just, you know, fundamentally won't rock the boat. So the calculation will be, do we, you know, certainly probably won't be AOC, but like, do we like bring someone else in and do something totally wacky and different? Or do we just um, move another anchor from another hour into that slot? And yeah, I mean, like, like it's Tapper certainly wants it. Brianna certainly wants it, I'm sure. but, you know, there's not a lot that can be done to, like, make the primetime hour of a cable network hugely successful unless you go full-blown, hair-on-fire, like, partisan outrage. And even that doesn't really work on the left um, or in the center. So it's a tough situation. Yeah, it's just, and it's just, I think it's, a, I think the reason I brought up the the AOC buzz and then contrasted it with just how unlikely that is is because again nothing nothing radical or visionary is going to take place in cable news right now and look the business of cable news is not just about ratings it's largely about carriage fees which is why these companies make so much money but if you want to play in ratings if you actually want to think huh could cnn actually give fox news a run for its money could anyone other than rachel maddow be in the top 10 most watched cable news programs, the other nine of which are dominated by Fox News. You have to start thinking more creatively than, hmm, who do we have on day side that we could move to uh, primetime? Like, you gotta, <laughs> you, you gotta, you know what I mean? You gotta just like, there's such a lack of vision right now in, in, in that regard in cable news. And I don't blame them because the talent pool of people who can simultaneously make cable news interesting, but aren't so controversial or off-putting to a segment of the population it's a really hard and fine line to walk yeah i mean there hasn't cable news tv news generally um beyond some bells and whistles and camera upgrades and and things like that it hasn't evolved i mean the last big evolution i remember in cable was when i worked at cnn and our bureau chief in washington david borman this would have been around 2005 like he pioneered the touchscreen thing that you now see on ESPN on every channel, the Steve Kornacki, John King thing, like CNN did that first. You know, he got mocked for trying to do the hologram thing with like Jessica Yellen back in the day. Yeah. And the guy from the Black Eyed Peas, that was in the 2008 <laughs> yeah, election. God. I mean, these are forgotten, but the oh, formats themselves I, haven't evolved. Forget? The formats yeah. have not evolved. I mean, I think content wise, you know, Zucker you could argue like did an evolution, which is just going all in on singular topics nonstop, like the poop cruise and the missing plane and then Donald Trump for four years. But the formats themselves haven't evolved in 10, 20, 30 years. So, you know, until the formats change fundamentally, it's hard to imagine the talent themselves making things that different. I don't know. But then again, Fox is the counter argument to that because Fox looks like 1980s television and crushes it. Yeah. Well, and Fox crushes it. I mean, because they, they, Fox has succeeded in being the sort of intellectual thought center of the right. And, and the truth is, is that the left, a, the left sort of 
or moderate, moderate, moderate left splits its time between MSNBC and CNN. So that audience gets split. If you combine them, which I believe might happen in like 10 years, you could, you could actually give Fox a run for its money in terms of, in terms of the ratings race. But anyway, I think the challenge that they have is that at the end of the day, a network like CNN and even MSNBC exists most importantly, because when a bomb goes off, when the country goes to war, uh, when something, when, when an election happens, people need to feel like they're listening to an authoritative voice. And it's a challenge to get too creative and too avant-garde with your programming and try and figure out what's happening, you know, doing something different and unique and sexy when you are simultaneously also trying to be like a voice of authority. Um, and I think, I think that's part of what makes it hard for programming a news network. Yeah. Um, I will let you go with a thought that, you know, I, I had with Matt Bellany last week, which is that um, in the United States, not just around the world, the most trusted news brand in the United States is the BBC. Uh, and yeah. part of that is, you know, I bet Americans always think people with British accents are more sophisticated, probably. Um, but, you know, I, I've talked to people who used to work at the BBC and still do over, over the years. And a reason that the BBC holds on to its credibility is because in their policies, they have made it very clear that, you know, it's important to avoid political bias. Uh, it's important to not tweet things that seem outrageous or biased. And like, that's obviously a very difficult thing to do, especially in the age of Donald Trump, you know, what's a lie, what's being fair, et cetera. But they have been very scrupulous, unlike CNN uh, and other news organizations here in terms of just trying as hard as they can to play it straight because they know their only credibility in this world is trust and authority. And once you give it away, you don't get it back. And like, that is what, what CNN has to deal with in the, in the Trump and post Trump era. Um, and I know we're out of time, but I will say this just to, just to whet the appetite of our subscribers. By the time they're listening to this, I will have a piece up about what you and I are talking about and the calculation for what you do with CNN. Do you chase ratings or do you uphold the brand of integrity and, and unbiased news? I believe that as CNN goes under the Warner Bros. Discovery umbrella next year, and there are different, there's different leadership, and as they are thinking about what the value proposition of CNN is as part of a streaming bundle, I think that calculation could change. And there are certainly going to be some executives and some shareholders, most notably John Malone, who are going to want to see CNN get back toward that BBC-style journalism we're talking about. And if Jeff Zucker really wants to pull off a masterstroke, he could figure out a way to make that hard news journalism interesting again. And it could it could make CNN extremely valuable to Warner Bros. Discovery as they as they enter the streaming. Universe. But I might be overly optimistic or hopeful. That is a hell of a tease. Uh, that tease would not work in, in cable, but that, that's a good tease. <laughs> All right, Dylan. Um, thank you for your insight as always. Excited to have you back next week. Thanks, Peter. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. I'm Peter Hamby, and I will see you next week.